The Discerning Geeks Portal's Babylon 5 spin-off podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to review each episode of Babylon 5, a show about officers, telepaths, criminals, and ambassadors, humans and aliens wrapped in five seasons of storytelling, standing tall amongst the rest. It can be a classic show, but it's our lasting best hope, for science fiction. These are our reviews of the original Babylon 5 TV show. The year is 2022. The name of the podcast is Discerning Lurkers Portal. Welcome, Discerning Lurkers, to the Discerning Lurkers Portal, a Babylon 5 podcast hosted by myself and my best friend and Babylon 5 expert, Todd. Todd, how you doing this evening? Uh, really good. We've been podcasting a lot tonight, so it's good to get some more things uh, out of the way and uh, particularly pleased about this episode. This is a big episode, so I'm eager to talk about it. You've actually been excited about this one kind of since we about started podcasting. I think you've been anxious to get to this one. So that's a good thing. Um, I think we're both happy with the progression that this podcast is going. And we keep getting a little bit better rhythm each time we do an episode. Hopefully you guys out there are noticing it and enjoying it. Please make sure you're sharing our podcast with others and letting them know where they can find us. If you know anybody that likes Babylon 5, you know, hey, let them know about our podcast. Have them give a listen. Make sure you rate us on whatever podcast listening platform you use so that we can move up. Um, we're pretty new at this episode or this particular podcast, but Todd and I both have been doing Another podcast, the Babel, the the Babel, the Discerning Geeks Portal, for some time now, almost a year and a half. Um, yep. So we're we're getting better at our craft, and I hope that it shows as we do this. But without any further ado, let's start talking about episode six, Parliament of Dreams. Maybe you mean episode six of the podcast because the pilot TV movie came first. But this is episode five of the series itself. It'll give us a quick synopsis rundown for this one. Lots going on in this episode. An old flame of Sinclair's arrives at the station just as Babylon 5 hosts a week-long festival highlighting the beliefs and cultures of all the inhabitants of Babylon 5. Uh, at the same time, Jakar is faced with an assassination attempt on his life and does not even know who he can trust. So kind of a lot of plots going on in this little episode. It's a, an action-packed one with lots of stuff going on. What was your initial reaction? I know we said you were looking forward to this one. Oh, well, I'm jumping ahead. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about this episode, kind of where it falls and, and who the director and writer and all that are. Okay, this is the fifth aired episode of season one, but the eighth one produced. Uh, as mentioned before, sometimes they they air, uh, produce things out of order quite a bit in season one. The original air date was February 23rd, 1994. It was written by J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of the show, and it was directed by Jim Johnston. This is his second of 11 episodes. It'll be directed by him. Okay. Now we could get into the, the initial reaction. What was your initial reaction to this episode? Please watch your step. This is a low gravity area. Please hold handrails at all times. Leaving blue sector. Now entering red sector. 
Uh, this is an excellent episode. It does a really good job of highlighting the cultures of the main races on Babylon 5. It ends with a really excellent and extremely memorable final moment that kind of elevates the whole episode. And despite all that, there's one thing that kind of brings it down and not because it's bad, but because it doesn't totally fit. So we, I can give more detail about it later. But yeah, that's my overall opinion of it being great, but maybe not superb or stellar. Okay. Okay. No, I like this episode. This was much better than our, our last one. Um, oh, yeah. The in, infection. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was a this was a good episode. I enjoyed it. Um, I felt like there was a lot of plots. Almost, I would kind of almost say maybe that there was one too many. But, uh, but other, I mean, it, it kept rolling and there was a lot of action and a lot of fun stuff going on. Probably my negative plot was a little different from yours i kind of felt like the the whole another girlfriend showing up for sinclair was a little weird and and out of place but and it just didn't feel like it added a whole lot to the to the episode or the world uh, i may be wrong that may come into play more in the future but just where i'm at right now is kind of like okay he's got another girlfriend great but other than that, I thought the episode was great. Like I did mention in our kind of rundown, we have multiple plots here, right? There is the whole um, assassin trying to kill um, Jakar, and we find out that pretty quickly. And then we do have these cultural exchanges or religious ceremony kind of things going on where each of the races get to highlight their culture and what they like and what they believe in. And at first it's kind of iffy, whether the residents, the staff, the people, you know, all the commander and everybody are really on board with how good this is going to be. It was more of an earth idea that they were going to do it, but I do think it added a whole lot to the episode. It was kind of cool to be able to see a little bit of behind the curtains for some of these races that we get to, to see. And then we do have the little bit of subplot between Sinclair with this um, formal girlfriend that apparently he somehow hooks up with about every three years. Did I miss anything, Todd? Well, yeah, there's still a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, when it comes to some world building stuff, one of the things we get is, you, you know, the, the ceremonies you're talking about, it's all about dominant belief systems. So Londo arranges just a big party that it's, I love uh, that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the celebration of the Centauri. Uh, I can't remember exactly what they call it, but it's to commemorate their victory against the Zon. Apparently at one time on their planet, there were two races, Centauri and the Zon. They were embittered war for a while, uh, but eventually the Centauri completely wipe out the Zon, and they are still happy about it to this day. And even Veer, who's usually a nice guy, even he seems to be kind of jovial about it. Uh, they even make jokes, you know, what does the last Zon say? Blah! So we get that little bit of backstory about the Centauri. Uh, You mentioned Sinclair and his girlfriend that kind of comes and goes. There's also a mention of Carolyn Sykes, who was his girlfriend in the pilot movie. And I'm not sure exactly what happened to her. Uh, I I know why some of the other characters were replaced, but I can't remember if that detail is anywhere, like if it was a contract thing or not enough money or she was casting something else or something. I, I don't know. But for whatever reason, 
the the girlfriend position got moved to a different actress and a different character for Sinclair. Uh, one other little nitpicky world building thing, and this was actually mentioned by JMS himself because he has a Patreon page, and he will occasionally do commentary for certain episodes, and he even allows his, his Patreon uh, patrons to vote on which one he does a commentary on. So this is one of them. So he actually said while he was watching the episode, while you get to watch him watch the episode, that PPGs, which were apparently used somewhere in the in the episode, I can't remember exactly where, but he explained that they use superheated plasma instead of bullets because you wouldn't want somebody poking holes in the hole. So it's a way of still having a weapon that can do damage against uh, a thing or a person, but without damaging the hole and in the vacuum space. Yeah, and then I've still got a little bit more, but I'll, I'll let you take a turn. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I love the, uh, I did love Londo and that whole scene. And he even crawls up on the table and I yeah. forget the comment that was made. It was like, he has become one with the feast or something like that. And they were like, uh, he passed out. In, I'll, I'll cover that in green sector because it's, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, no, yeah, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Cause that. Well, well, I've got it in both green sector and gray sector. Cause there's a little bit behind the scenes information uh, on that scene as well. So yeah, we'll, t- we'll be talking about it more later. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, I thought this was a was great. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into our kind of likes and favorite moments for this episode. I like your first one. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Jakar sings a song, Too Many Fishes in the Sea. And my great-grandmother used to sing that to me as a kid. And I'm not sure she ever sang very much of the song. I don't even know if she knew that much of the song. Uh, she lived to be 99, so maybe maybe by the time I was alive and a kid and, and around her a, a lot, maybe she had forgotten some of it. I don't know. But Jakar, I think, actually sings a second verse of it. But it's it's always nice to, to hear that song. It always reminds me a little bit of my great-grandmother. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure that I knew where that song came from or that it was an actual real song or anything, but uh, that was actually a really cool little scene where he did sing that. And, uh, and it's a human song, so it makes me wonder where he learned it from. But maybe he learned it from one of the human women that he likes hanging out with. Because one of my other favorites is when Garibaldi finds the lingerie in Jakar's quarters. <laughs> I and did says, love hot, that. Hot pink is definitely your color, and Jakar just seems disgusted by that. <laughs> well, they made a comment earlier. It will, we get to we'll get some of this into the green sector when we kind of talk about some of these characters. But we get a few new assistance to our uh, ambassadors. You know, Jakar gets a new assistant. And uh, so, yeah, we get a few. And she makes a comment, something along the lines of she's not, so, she doesn't make comments about what goes on in his room at night or something like that, yeah, yeah. especially his propensity to human women or something. And I was like, yeah. oh. and then he finds the, the, the pink panties. And it was like that. That was kind of cool. That was a cool little nod that they they threw out there. Um, I really enjoyed the scene of the Minbari ceremony. And that one we're going to have to delve in very deeply, probably in our gray sector, as we kind of get some foreshadowing of some stuff going on there. But I thought that was pretty cool as far as it goes. 
Uh, what else do we have as far as the likes and dislikes? Yeah, just to follow up on that ceremony, something that I have to give them credit, but there again, I can't remember which podcast it was. It was either the Yum Yum podcast or the White Rocket Babylon 5 podcast. But one of them, when they were talking about that scene, um, they clued into the concept that the Mimbari are very duplicitous. Uh, you know, they keep a lot of secrets. They're very mysterious. Uh, they claim that they don't lie, but they still have a way of kind of deceiving you, that kind of thing. And so it kind of fits that that ceremony doubles as a marriage ceremony. And and yeah. even and even Catherine Sakai knows that uh, because she's the one that tells Jeff about it. And uh, it, yeah, so it's kind of neat that even their ceremonies have dual purposes and it, it kind of fits with the, the rest of their society. Their culture. Um, yeah, that's cool. And then uh, it, another thing about that same ceremony, and I'm curious whether you noticed it on your own, because I don't remember if I noticed it on my own the first time. I probably didn't, uh, but I've noticed it every time since then. So I think I probably read it on the internet somewhere. But there's a moment where uh, Delenn hands out these little fruits. They're probably just cherry tomatoes or something like that. Uh, but these little Mimbari fruits to everybody. And then the camera cuts to her and it's a close up of her doing something, probably with a candle or something like that. But in the background, you can see Jakar and not even his whole body. In fact, you can't see his face, but you see his, his gloved hand and you can tell that he is switching fruits with Ivanova. And the reason is that at that point, he already knows that the that there's an assassin who's out to kill him. So he's worried that maybe he's being poisoned through this little fruit that Delenn has. So he intentionally switches it. And it's so funny because it's so subtle, because like I said, the camera is not directly on him. You don't see his face. So you really have to be observant to, to catch it. And it's done in almost a comical ma manner. And then on top of that, think about it. What if that little fruit was poison? He basically just killed Ivanova. Right. <laughs> no, I didn't notice that. I noticed his hesitation when they first gave him the fruit. Like you could kind of tell like he's going am I really going to eat this? Cause I know somebody's going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, no, that was cool. When he did eat it, I was kind of like, huh, he did eat it, but I missed that he had switched it. So that's, that's pretty important. I'm going to have to go back and kind of check out that, that scene. I'm really anxious to get into green sector and I don't want to jump ahead too quick. Did you have anything else that you wanted to mention in red before we got to our green section and started talking about these characters? I well, I think the only thing that was left in my notes is the whole thing about the dominant belief system about uh, it, it's it's supposed to emphasize coexistence and having many beliefs and and all getting along. And we may talk about that a little bit later. But the only thing I had left in my notes was saying that, unfortunately, right now, it feels like we're a long way off from that in real life. Well, that's, that's true. It. Yeah. Now entering green sector. So, yeah, let's hop on our little portal to port tube. <laughs> uh, Core shuttle. Do, yeah. And get to Green Sector, where um, we get to meet quite a few new characters here. Um, we get the new, uh, we'll get Lanier. He's kind of a fan favorite. It's kind of interesting that he does, I don't know that I remember that he didn't show up till like episode six. But yeah, we get. Well, you're uh, close because this is five. Yeah, or five. Yeah. Yeah, he's. Of course, Delenn's uh, assistant, 
ambassador assistant person. Each of them kind of gets their assistant. And it was a really neat sex scene where he comes on. And of course, he's kind of awestruck. He's like, he's getting to work for this member of the Grey Council. And and, this, and she's kind of like, okay, so the first thing is you can never mention anything about the Grey Council. And you need to uh, not call me Satai. Is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wait. What? <laughs> She's kind of like, yeah, you can do that, right? He's like, well, I mean, I don't really have a choice, so yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely kind of, it leads to that mystery that you've already kind of talked about with the Membari of there's there's some levels of secrecy going on, some things that they definitely don't want to let out, and we get to see it pretty quickly, and we get to meet a new character, and we also got to meet the new assistant for Jakar, uh, Natoth, they did make a comment. He kind of says that his former assistant, and I forgot her name. Koroth. Yes, was killed in some kind of airlock accident or something um, just the day before or week before. But I think we had already discussed in our previous episode that that was more due to uh, – some actors changing as far as she wasn't able to handle the, the makeup. Right. And so they were forced to kind of change the actor actress. And then we also mentioned that we got to meet another, another ex-girlfriend or another girlfriend of, of Sinclair as she comes on board. So we got lots of new characters in this one. What else do we have? Well, it's also the second appearance of Mark Hendrickson as one of many alien side roles, and this time as a Narn. Uh, He's one of several people who, who, they kind of rotate in and out playing different aliens, Uh, but this is his second time on the show. And it's the third appearance of Negrath, and that'll be third appearance out of four. So we got one more after this. One more, and I like him, so I'm kind of surprised he doesn't make it through more episodes, but we'll have to see what happens to Negrath. Yeah, it's because I think JMS was never totally pleased with the uh, puppet suit, whatever he he was. Uh, I think he always wanted it shot in more darkness and with shadows so they'd be a little bit mysterious and kind of cover up the the fact that it's just a puppet or or suit or whatever it was. I think the directors kept filming it in too much light, and he was like, okay, this just isn't working. Screw it. And so so that's why we got rid of (laughs) McGrath after a while. Okay, so let's talk about some of the performance highlights and recurring characters, things like that. It looks like you've got some behind the scene action for us. What's what we got in this section. Okay. Yeah. JMS revealed uh, quite a lot when he was doing that uh, review on Patreon. And, and I don't know, maybe I should leave some stuff out. I don't know. Uh, well, there again, he has released the stuff from Patreon, the reviews that he's done so far, he's released them to YouTube. So at this point, I think they're free for for everybody, at least the ones he's done so far. So anyway, he talked a little bit about Andreas Katsoulis, who played Jakar, and how he loved the makeup and costume. You know, a lot of people that have that heavy makeup, they they can't totally handle it, but he loved it. It For some reason, it made him feel sexy. Uh, so <laughs> while others couldn't wait to get out of it, he would eat lunch in the makeup, and he would uh, just leave the makeup on all day, and he wouldn't take it off until he absolutely had to. Let me see. Oh, all right. So going back to the Centauri ceremony, no one in the cast knew that Peter Jurassic as Londo was going to get up on that table. 
Now, Peter, I think, did work it out with the director ahead of time because they they wanted genuine reactions from everyone. <laughs> now, Mira Furlan as Delenn, she kind of keeps it together, uh, but they had to remove some of Claudia Christian's excessive laughter. Claudia Christian playing Ivanova. Uh, so, if you if you really do pay attention to that scene, because Ivanova is way in the back, if you really look, that's not Ivanova laughing. That's Claudia Christian laughing. Uh, she was just losing it the whole time. Uh, and somebody else they didn't tell was the prop or set design department because Londo getting up on that table, it almost gave way. In fact, I think there was a, a detail later. I can't remember if it was in the script books or if JMS said in the commentary, but I think I've heard or read somewhere that after the scene was shot, they went and inspected the table and there was something weak about it. Either one of the legs was broken or there was a, a screw loose or there, there was just something where if they had had to do another take or two, it probably would have collapsed with, with Peter Jurassic on. Oh, wow. Uh, that is funny because you're in the scene. Um, the character, you know, Claudia Delenn is not, you could tell she's being very serious. Yeah, she's kind of like, this is just kind of almost too much. They're just kind of, and so for her character to kind of be the one that kind of loses it, that's that's really kind of funny. In, uh, are, in that. Well, no, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So who who are you saying is serious, Delenn? Yeah. Right. But, but then, and it's Claudia Christian as Ivanova who loses it. Oh, Claude. Okay. Okay. So, okay. That's why. Okay. Well, I could see that either way, but, um, okay. So Claudia was as Ivanova was the one that, that just yeah. kind of completely busted out laughing. Okay. Yeah. I, I might, I might've misspoken if I, if I did, That's I, okay. I apologize. Um, um, and, and it also kind of makes sense because Mira Furlan, I've, I've met her three times in, in real life, but before she passed away and granted, just briefly, I mean, we're talking about at conventions where I, you know, right. say something, get an autograph and a, and a picture with her real quick. Uh, but she, but I've also seen her at, at some panels too. And she is a little, she was a little bit on the serious side. So it kind of makes sense that between that and her just being a really good actress that yes, she did keep it together during that scene. But Claudia is a little bit more charismatic. And between that and Ivanova having that side too, it, it kind of makes sense that she would lose it. And I, I see one more line in my notes that actually Jerry Doyle and Stephen first as Garibaldi and Veer, they start to lose it a little bit at the end too. That's funny. That, that was that's cool. That's one of those little nice little tidbits that uh, it's hard to tell when when you're just watching it. But it definitely was a good choice on their part to kind of play it that way to get the real reaction as he's crawling across the table and all this God is yeah yeah. <laughs> and that was that was a great scene. So all right, what else we got? Well, I've still got a lot more stuff. So, do you do you need to? No, keep forward? going. I'm good. Okay. go for it. Okay, so steering a little bit over to the Jakar side. Um, so the, he's got an assassin who's after him. The assassin eventually catches up. Uh, he puts this thing around his neck as some kind of uh, pain giver, and he activates it several times. And so it kind of does this electroshock on Jakar. Now, I don't know if you paid attention, but Jakar, yes, he makes a noise, but it's not a scream. Did you notice that? Yeah. Okay. That will be important later. Uh, oh. Somewhere, is it two? No, it's actually three seasons from now. It'll be important. And I can't remember if there's another instance earlier than that, but there'll be another instance in season four and kind of in a way in season five. It's very important that he does not scream out in pain. Yes, he, he, ha he like I said, he kind of makes a noise, kind of like a, 
like that, but he's yeah. not, but he's not outright screaming. That's important. And I can't help but wonder if that was an acting choice or if it was actually instructed to him by either director or by JMS not to scream out. Uh, but it is foreshadowing for something that happens later. Okay. Okay. Uh, and in general, this this episode kind of marks the beginning of Jakar being a more sympathetic and humorous character. Um, yep. And then I've got a question for you about the Sinclair and Catherine Sakai relationship, but I'll, I'll let you take a turn. Well, I, I did notice that because in previous episodes that we've watched up till now, Jakar has been a very abrasive character. Mm -hmm. He's been very much kind of portrayed as the kind of almost aggressive enemy alien um, in most of the episodes. And this is kind of the first time that we get a little bit more of a sympathetic look at him. And that was definitely very different in this episode. Um, again, I was, I wasn't super excited about the, the Sinclair Catherine um, relationship, not in any, it wasn't anything that like turned me off to me. It just kind of felt weird. And I think it was probably because we already saw him with one other girl in the, the, the gathering or the, the first pilot movie um, who didn't make it. And so it's kind of almost like, well, how many of these girlfriends does he have just kind of floating around showing up at you know the base and that we're going to have to deal with. And so it was probably the, the least exciting part of the episode for me. Now, that being said, one of my favorite quotes, which I'll get to here in a little bit, was actually from their interactions. So it still had its moments. Oh, okay. But what was your question as far as dealing with this relationship for the, okay, well, these characters? Well, first, a little bit of setup. Now, J. Michael Straczynski has written an autobiography, uh, Becoming Superman. And I've read most of it. Um, I, I really need to go back and finish. I'm terrible at, uh, about reading. I, I really, I really should finish most of it. But uh, there is a part where he's talking about his college days, and there is a woman who comes in and out of his life around that time. And Catherine Sakai is kind of based on that character. Not character. You mean person in real life. He said in his uh, commentary for this episode that a lot of the stuff between Sinclair and Catherine Sakai is based on that relationship with that woman, and a lot of the conversations are taken from real life. The whole thing about how they get back together every three years and some of the questions they ask each other when they do, he said a lot of that stuff is lifted exactly from some of his conversations with that hmm. particular woman. And I don't think he ever names her, uh, but he... He talks about Sinclair's awkwardness, and he says that that comes from him because JMS claims to be kind of awkward in, in real life. He said that it was really hard to watch those scenes, and you could kind of see a little bit of the pain on his face as, as he's watching those scenes because uh, not only is it hard remembering that relationship, but even harder because apparently that woman has passed on. So I guess she's, she's passed away. She's, she's uh -huh. died uh, in the interim. Um, but he said that that restaurant scene in particular c contains a lot of the conversations that they had. Uh, and he, he, in fact, he said at one point, and I actually had the quote for this. He said, this is hard to watch. I must have cannibalized this entire conversation. Uh, so that's the setup. And so now here's my question. The problem is in a way we already had the answer to this, uh, because of what I just set up. Let me take a sip of water. Okay. 
like you, I kind of had a little bit of issue with the Sinclair Catherine Sakai relationship and not with their chemistry or anything like that. But I did feel like some of the dialogue to me personally did not feel very natural. And I don't know if that was because of the writing, the delivery by the actors, the way maybe the director chose for them to deliver the lines. Maybe they didn't have a full understanding of how much it meant to JMS. And so they just didn't know how to convey it as much as he may have meant in his writing of it. So the reason I wanted to ask you about it is I know you've had more of a social life than I have. Uh, you're, you're on your second wife and, and, and you've just, you may not have quite the, the, the shyness and awkwardness issues that I do. So I'm, I'm wondering, it, is that dialogue natural? Like in some of your interactions with women and because to me, it didn't sound natural. And I'm just wondering, did it, did it seem natural to you? Do people actually talk that way? And again, I know the answer is automatically yes, because JMS has admitted that some of these conversations are almost word for word. So apparently it was real for him. But are, are these type of exchanges really common for normal people? Because they just didn't sound right to me. Well, and I think the answer there is in the situation it probably is some natural in that, you know, this is a person who is coming into his life, but they obviously have a lot of background. Yeah. And I think that's where it's a little awkward in the way that we're seeing it in this episode. We're kind of force fed that they have all this background. Yeah. So this is years of, of experience with each other where they've developed this way that this conversation would take place because they're very used to each other. But for us, it's the first time we're seeing them together. And that's why it feels awkward because I know that the way that you're doing it, you're telling us this ha that they have this past, but we have no notion before they basically kind of get together uh, and see each other that they have this extensive past. So it's kind of shocking. It's kind of like a shock to the system of where did this person come from? They, they kind of come out of the blue. Yeah. Um, and they're having this very kind of almost coded conversation Yeah. because they have this history and that's how they would talk. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, yes, but it, it feels out of place just because of the way that it's nested in this series. Um, it would have been better if at some point we had some teasing to this character being out there, um, you know, in some way, shape or form before they show up and they start having this dialogue where they basically act like they know each other forever and and have all this background and we don't know who this person is. So um, basically the, the first time they had, they would have had these exchanges, it would have sounded more natural, but the fact that they're yes. saying these things again, because they're used to saying them, that's what makes it feel unnatural. Yes. They've, okay. they've developed their own language, their own code of talking yeah. to each other, um, which does happen when you're in a relationship for long periods of time you don't have to go into long tirades about, you know, oh, this is my background and this, that, and the other. It becomes, you know, yeah, and I would ask you how your uncle is. And that's 
kind of code word for a deeper meaning and a deeper conversation that they've they've had you know a hundred times but it just feels awkward because we don't know what all that code means because we've never seen them together before yeah um you know it's funny because like i said i kind of poo-pooed this relationship a little bit but i did think one of the coolest lines um they're together and and in his room and uh, he keeps getting interrupted or whatever and he she's beginning to leave and i think he puts his arm on her shoulder and just to kind of like stop her and, and say hey i don't want you to go and she just looks at him and is like don't touch me unless you mean it oh Okay, go ahead. And, and I was like, wow, you know, that's and, – and again, it shows their their past because, you know, you wouldn't say that on a first date, you know. <laughs> um, I hope. Um, but you would – after you have that experience with each other, you know what each – one is coming from and what the history is and all of that, you can kind of get away with that line. And I thought it was really kind of cool. Uh, To me, that line came off very soap opera ish. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. That was probably the one line that might have felt the least natural. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's keep going. Um, what else do we have in our character development or quotes? I gave you my quote. Um, yeah, I've got but, three. So if they're overlap, you might want to take one or two of them. Okay. Go with what you got. Let's see here. So there's a little exchange between Adrazi and Garibaldi. Uh, Drazi said, uh, you test my faith. And Garibaldi says, and you're testing my patience. Now move on before I decide to flunk out. I thought that was a great, <laughs> a great play on words with the, the use of test and flunk out. Uh, I did actually have the Delenn quote. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I thought you might. Yeah. I did. I thought that was great. We kind of talked about that scene where she meets Veer and. Uh, you mean Lanier. And they're, they're kind of talking and she just says, I cannot have an aide who will not look up. He will be forever walking into things um, because he's constantly kind of looking down, I guess, averting his eyes from her majesty as she's part of this great council. Um, And I thought that was a great quote. And then, yeah, you have what I was talking about with Londo on the table. So, yeah, give us that quote. Okay, so uh, Londo, he, he, there's a little bit before this. He, he's going on for a while. But then eventually he says, God's by the bushel, God's by the pound. Everybody's cute, even me. But in purple, I'm stunning. And then he <laughs> falls on the table. And Veer says, he has become one with his inner self. Garibaldi says, he's passed out. Veer says, that too. That too. <laughs> that was great. So, I so, love that. Yeah, so that's a great exchange. And then going back to the the, the thing that you said about uh, Delenn and Lanier, uh, again, this is something I heard in another podcast. So I got to give them credit. It was either Yum Yum or White Rocket Babylon 5 review podcast. But one of those pointed out that, yes, Delenn tries to act all nice and kind of casual and everything by saying, oh, you need to look up. But then just a minute later, when he's when he refers to her as Satai, she's like, don't call me Satai. Don't talk about the, the Great Council. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's like she goes back into boss mode yep. uh, in just a minute or two. So, so yes, in some ways, she's able to kind of be friendly and casual with Lanier, but she kind of also has to put him in his place every once in a while, too. 
So I think that kind of wraps up our green sector with our characters and our... And so let's move on to our brown sector. Now entering brown sector. Where we get to talk about the nitpicks, dislikes, and bad stuff. And why don't you start us off with one, and then I've got one. I think you've got a couple more after that. Okay, what is up with Catherine Sakai's eye makeup? What? <laughs> is it just me? It, does, does this seem weird? Did you notice at all? There was something off, and, it, and I couldn't figure out if they were trying to make her seem alien. I mean, not not alien, but you know, because she was human. I don't know. It, it, something seemed off where they were trying to, I guess, show futuristic sci-fi trend and make i don't know yeah because yeah. see the, the, the thing is all right i'm obviously not a woman and i don't use makeup so i so i don't know so i'm not an expert on makeup but i know that women when they when they do wear makeup it's usually to darken the eye yeah something is going on with Catherine sakai's eyes where the area around her eyes is actually lighter than the rest of her face not by much but just enough to be noticeable and here's the thing because i'm a guy and not a woman I also rarely notice makeup and I'm not even right. sure it's makeup. Whatever it is I'm noticing, part of me feels like I probably should not be noticing. In fact, maybe it's not makeup. Maybe it's the lack of makeup. Like maybe the actress was out in the sun one day and was wearing shades. And so the sunglasses blocked uh, light from, from tanning the, the area around Everything her eyes. But her eyes. <laughs> and maybe they just didn't use enough makeup to cover up that difference. Maybe that's what's going on. All I know is something is going on and it's distracting every time I see her. And I don't think it was distracting the first time or two that I may have seen an episode with her in it. But then somewhere along the way, I noticed it. And after I noticed it, I can't unnotice it. Okay. Um, and this is definitely a nitpick, but I felt cheated a little bit i got to see the centauri i got to see the mimbari we got to see earth uh -huh. mm -hmm. no narn yeah we hear that they have drums and something and but i was kind of like wait how come we got to see everybody else's ritual and we didn't get anything and that, I, that's again it's a nitpick because most of the episode a big chunk of it was following Jakar around with this assassination. So maybe they kind of felt like that would be a little bit too much focus on, on them. But I, I felt a little cheated that I didn't get to see anything of their ritual. Uh, what else you got? I would say that's more than a nitpick. That would actually be my biggest complaint about the, the whole thing. Um, and in fact, I think I messed up not putting it in brown sector in my notes. I think I actually mentioned it in, in red sector and then didn't talk about it when I actually uh, spoke, uh, gave my opinion in red sector. That's my main complaint is that, yes, as much as I love this episode overall, I think the one thing that brings it down is the Jakar assassination subplot. And not because it's bad, but because it doesn't fit. You talked about uh, the Catherine Sakai thing not fitting to me it's the assassination subplot that doesn't fit and yes i would rather have seen the the whole cultural thing of the narn i feel like like you that's missing and to me that's that's a big deal now we do get to see some of that in a later episode and it's a weird episode i can't help but wonder if they put it in that episode to make up for this one because the episode is by any means necessary. And that is an episode that's all about a dock worker strike. And somehow they work in 
a subplot about Narn religion. And I can't help but wonder, is that because it wasn't in this one that they felt like, okay, we need to cover it eventually. So they, they kicked it down the road. But, uh, but to me, that's a big deal. Todd wanted me to clarify that when he said, by any means necessary, is a weird episode. He didn't mean bad, weird. He likes the episode. He just thinks it's weird that an episode about a dock worker's strike, something that you'd think would be boring, ends up being as good as it is. And then talking about the Chikar assassination subplot, this is a nitpick. Uh, he receives a death blossom, which is basically kind of like a black rose, uh-huh. but he receives it on his pillow and his quarters are so dark and, you know, they're lit with that red light. And it was at night when he was sleeping. It's so dark that the first few times uh, that I've seen this episode, I'm not sure I even noticed the death blossom on his pillow. It's very hard to see considering how dark the whole room is. So right. I think they should have done something. I knew it might've been a little bit maybe obvious or inconspicuous, but maybe d- did like a little pin light on the pillow. So that at least you see what it is he's yelling about when he wakes up. But, um, so that's kind of weird. And then I've got one more, but I'll go for I'll it. You go. Yeah. Um, okay. So this actually comes from JMS's commentary. Uh, he does mention the Negra thing about how he doesn't look very menacing in the light, but then he talks about the pain giver, the the thing around Jakar's neck that I've already talked about, that's one of those things that always bugs JMS because if you really pay attention to it, it's so big, it would be very easy for Jakar to just lift it over his head and be done with it. Yeah. Uh, but he said it's one of those things where you entrust the prop department to come up with something and then you show up for shooting one day and they use the, the thing and you realize, crap, we do not have time to rebuild it and you've got to go with it. And so there are even a few times where Jakar is kind of holding the pain giver and it's not necessarily because he's trying to get it off or turn it off or, or anything like that. It's almost like the actor is trying to keep it on his head because so if he moves a certain weight, yeah, it might fall off. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get to our final sector. Move on to gray sector. Now entering gray sector, beware of spoiler zone at end of sector. Take us into some of the behind the scenes stuff. I know we've talked about a few things already, but this one you've got a lot for. So what, yeah, yeah. what, what do we do behind it, it, the scenes here? Yeah, that's because there's some stuff from the script book and then some stuff from the commentary that JMS did online. So my first few come from that video, which I think I've read about some of this stuff before. So it might be in multiple sources. But anyway, he talked about the the pig head that was used for Jakar's meal in his quarters. And he said that that pig had stunk up that room like crazy. It was so bad that the odor lasted for days uh, and they had to <laughs> fumigate the place. And it was, it was just horrible. I think some people might've almost gotten sick. And then that little thing that was also on his plate that was actually alive and crawling away, that was a crawfish and it did keep crawling away. And um, the actors were under strict orders not to ad lib, because JMS really wanted control over the script since he had so much of the story arc planned ahead of time. But one of the things that, you know, they could get around, get away with little things every once in a while. So Jakar actually picking up one of the crawfish and putting it back on the plate and saying something like stay put or don't go away or whatever it is he said, he got to right. ad-lib that. 
For some weird reason, JMS also talked about the logo. I guess he feels like when the when the beginning credits start, he still has to do something during the commentary. So we talked about the logo and the, the fact that he kind of designed the logo, maybe not artistically, but he described it to the art department, how it should look and even how the laser line should go across the shape of the five. And so uh, it was it was something that was d- very detailed in a memo to the effects team. Every once in a while, we see Jakar in uh, full body makeup uh, in his quarters. He kind of has kind of like a dressing gown or something, but it's kind of unzipped to where you can see some of his chest. Whenever they do that, Andreas Katsoulis had to have his chest shaved. And even though he usually loved playing Jakar, he was not happy about having to shave his chest. So... uh, so he yeah, liked the makeup, I, but just not the chest part. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, anytime he had to do that, I, I think JMS got some complaints from him. Let me see that one Tennyson line that was used uh, during the episode. I don't even remember it because I remember a Tennyson line, but I'm not sure it's in this episode that I remember. Uh, but anyway, JMS said that that Tennyson line is it quote tattooed on my heart. So apparently he uses it a lot. In fact, he used it in other things that he's written for before. And in fact, he's used it so many times that eventually he had to tell himself to knock it off. The point is made. Um, yeah, I remember because it was between um, Sinclair and Catherine. They were talking and she even quotes it back to him, I think. And he's like, I must have said it a lot if you remember it. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, he mentioned the thing about the pain giver. I've already talked about that. Um, oh, and he said that to this day, he remembers almost every line of this episode. And I'm not positive, but he might be that way about every episode. Then uh, a little bit of stuff from the script book. Um, uh, oh, I forgot about this. There, there was one part I said I was going to read word for word, uh, if I can find that quickly enough. Uh, let me actually come back to that one. Well, no. Yeah, I guess I need to do that as a setup for this next thing. Sorry. Hang on just a second. That's okay. And it's just one paragraph. But it's something that JMS said about diversity, and I think it's a setup for the how he came up with the idea for the whole dominant belief system thing. So this is from the script book, page 46, for uh, this particular episode. When it came time for Sinclair to demonstrate the dominant Earth belief system, I decided that the only thing that made sense was to show that humanity's greatest strength is our diversity, that we are made stronger, not weaker, by a plurality of voices. Knowing that other SF shows tended to favor a nearly atheistic future, I chose to start the scene with a bit of misdirection by having Sinclair bring the other ambassadors into the central corridor and introduce them to a man he identifies as an atheist. Then the camera pulls back, revealing a line of others standing behind him, Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims, and Jews, and Native Americans, on and on and on. It wasn't about each of them making a statement or taking a position. It was about the simple fact that they existed side by side. Uh, So that's the setup for the next comment, where JMS goes on to explain that Warner Brothers executives wanted to be on set that day. Uh, even if they couldn't explain why. He said that there was something about that final scene that just moved people. Everyone was taking pictures, including the office staff. He said that for that scene, the Balon 5 stages felt bigger somehow. You felt stronger, lighter, proud to be a human. He said it's still he still never experienced anything like that to this day. Oh, interesting. Um, 
And then I, well, I think the next thing is kind of a repeat of that because he mentioned it also in the commentary that he did online. Uh, he said that the scene was somehow oddly magical. Uh, he also said that Michael O'Hare, who plays Sinclair, he said he memorized all the names that day. And then he, oh, he, he does also elaborate to say that we are the universe trying to figure itself out and uh, that that line is kind of the embodiment of us trying to figure things out. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. One last thing. He kind of, I don't know if it needs explaining, but he does kind of explain the title of the episode, Parliament of Dreams. He said that all the gathering of representatives was the parliament and the various belief systems were the dreams. Okay. That makes sense. And it was a cool title. Um, I think I even, we had even toyed with kind of a parliament of dreams as a possible title for our podcast. So um, that's a, this is a important episode and we get a lot from it. And so with that, we're going to each give our rating on this episode uh, and we do it, of course, in our Psycore rating scale. So scale from 1 to 12. And Todd, what did this Parliament of Dreams get on your rating scale? Well, I can tell you, but I'm curious if you can guess. Are you still there? I am. I'm, I'm, sadly, I can't guess because I can see it on your notes. <laughs> oh, that's right. Duh. Uh, never mind. Wow. That's, that's kind of stupid of me. That's confirmed. Okay. So wow. I was trying to like, I, I could guess or I could just tell you what you put in your notes. <laughs> Why did I ask that? That's right. Yeah. I, I, I did that's show okay. you my notes. So yeah. Okay. Well, it's a P10. Yeah. This is the, the first great episode. It's the first one that I've given to uh, double digits to. It is one of the better episodes of season one. I think I've always liked it. I can't now in my usual spreadsheet, I grade things on a letter grade scale. And I can't remember. I think this one might have gone up. Uh, and of course I don't have that handy right now. I might be able to pull it up while you're talking about yours, but, but yeah, this is, this has always been a strong episode. It'll always be a strong episode. And if for no other reason than that final moment, it'll always be memorable for at least that, if nothing else. Yeah, no, I'm with you. This was a good episode. I'm torn. I kind of had it at a P9, mainly because I still want to kind of have a little bit of space for some great ones. So P9, P10, it's it's in there. You know, it's right in that area. As I have more episodes to kind of compare it to, I'm sure some of these will adjust and I'll have to kind of go back and say, you know, I originally gave this a P9, but, you know, when I rate it against the others, it moves up to this. Or maybe it moves down. We don't know. Um but kind of from where I'm at so far, just on what we've seen, I gave this one, uh, my initial was a, a P9. So, Okay. All right. And with and that. It, it, oh. Well, real quick, I did pull up my spreadsheet. And yes, this did go up. Last time I gave it a B, this time I gave it a B plus. And a B plus sounds a little bit low as far as letter grades for something this good. Like you said, there are so many episodes later that are going to be phenomenal. I'm saving my A minuses above for those. Okay. Um, so actually you had it about where I kind of the nine would have been kind of in that B range for the P nine, if we kind of compared those on a chart. So, yeah. Um, so with that, let's, we're going to get into our spoiler section and that's where we kind of talk about some of the deeper hidden plots and behind the scenes things of things coming up. And some of our listeners may not want to know that stuff. And so if you don't, then that's okay. We're going to say goodbye to you here. We do encourage you to remember to rate our podcast on whatever chance you get. 
follow us on our Facebook and make sure you email us any comments, discerninggeeks at gmail.com. The Discerning Geeks portal is our Facebook. And yeah, we hope you'll interact with us some and let us know what your ratings are, what's your favorite episode so far. And again, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you on the flip side if you bail out on our spoilers. Yeah, thank you for listening. And sometimes there are some fans out there, either casual fans or even avid fans, that sometimes suggest to people to skip all of season one, which is just ridiculous, or even parts of it. Whatever you do, don't let this be one of the episodes that you skip. I agree. All right. So now we're going into our spoiler zone. And this is, for those listening, kind of where we, again, talk about some of that stuff that may have bigger implications in the plot. Little hints and things that are coming up that will play out further, but some people may not want to know it. Um, but we want to talk about it when we can. Sometimes I don't know it, and we have to even hold it out as spoilers for me. But that's okay. So, what do you? How, where do you want us to start with this one, Todd? Okay, so as you mentioned, this is the introduction of Lanier and Bill yep. Mooney, who some people may know from Lost in Space. Um, he was cast as Lanier, and somewhere along the way, he suggested to J. Michael Straczynski that maybe Lanier should actually be in love with Delenn. And I think JMS might, I, I think the way he words it, he might have maybe already been planning something like that. But the fact that Bill Mooney suggested it is like, okay, that cements it. But he also told Bill, you got to be careful what you ask for. Um, because I, I won't say exactly what I can, or unless you want me to, I can leave out the details. But there is kind of a mistake slash betrayal that Lanier commits later on. Uh, in the series, like way far in the series. And it's, uh, it's kind of the consequences for Lanier having this love for Delenn, but having them unrequited uh, because even though he may love her, she is not meant for him and it gets to him. He screws up at some point and it's a mistake that he kind of has to pay for, for a while. So, uh, so that's kind of the, the, I don't know if punishment is the right word, but, but JMS is all about consequences. Yeah. Uh, it, there are three main things in Babylon five, uh, responsibility choices and consequences. And this was definitely a consequence of Bill Mooney suggesting that his character be in love with them. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about that Minbari scene. And we talked about it a little bit in our episode already in that this, doubled this ceremony doubled as like a marriage ceremony. Mm -hmm. And even though in this episode, we're focused on Sinclair with his girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. There's still this kind of moment of kind of eye contact between him and Delenn. Just curious there. Intentional, not intentional. What am I missing? Probably. And I can go into it if you really want me to. And it's not even a spoiler because it has to do with something that didn't happen instead of something that did happen. And it, it's it's also kind of related to the one other spoiler in my notes. So if you want me to, I can kind of combine them. In a way. Yeah, go for it. Because I kind of. Okay. So I don't know if we talked about it much yet, but uh, Sinclair does not 
last the entire series. And the reason is the actor, Michael O'Hare, that played him had was starting to show signs of kind of a severe mental disorder. So he was kind of written out of the show after a discussion we, he had with JMS. And I can go into that in more detail. So, well, now, if you want me to, but some other time, uh, if you want me to save it. But because he does not last throughout the entire show as originally planned, a lot of J. Michael Straczynski's overall five-year story art for Babylon 5 had to change some along the way. So in the pre-Sheridan structure, uh, Catherine Sakai would have been the one who went to Zaha Doom uh, for things like Quantum 40 and would have gotten mixed up with Shadows. And so Sinclair would have had to deal with that. So he would have lost another girlfriend. <laughs> um, and yes, eventually at some point, I think Sinclair was meant to be with Delenn. And I think that in the original structure, they were even supposed to have a kid. Hmm. And then there was uh, something about how they would time travel and it would be a setup for a spinoff show. So even though he had this five-year arc, it was basically to set up another five-year arc of another show. If I'm remembering correctly, I, I I, I think I'm getting it all correct. But um, so anyway, yes, I, I think that that look was intentional because originally there was supposed to be a romantic relationship between Sinclair and Delenn eventually. But that kind of all sadly kind of got mixed up or changed around when we mm -hmm. had to change the kind of yeah. the main character, main commander. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So some of that subplot went to Sheridan. And in fact, I think JMS even used that as kind of a cover story for what happened to Michael O'Hare there for a while. Uh, I think he, if, if I'm remembering that correctly, he basically used the excuse that Michael O'Hare was more of a theater actor and he wanted to get back to theater. And uh, I think the suits wanted somebody who might've been a little bit more of a cowboy type. And so Bruce Boxleitner would play a good uh, Sheridan. And then in addition to that, I think JMS kind of claimed that, oh, there was too much of the story arc wrapped up in one person. So you've got, you know, this command structure thing and the war arc and the Mimbari connection and, and all, all too much into one character. So he thought, why not split it up into two characters? Um, and that was kind of the cover story there for a while, for a while Michael O'Hare had to, to leave and, and why some of his stuff went to Sheridan. Okay. Okay. Well, it is kind of interesting that we know, kind of from the outside that he had this five-year arc but it is very interesting that we also have to see how he had to adapt that arc as some things changes as characters changed as actors had fell by the wayside or, or different things um and how some of those things changed over time um that's that takes a lot of skill, you know, cause it's not some of that stuff you can't just drop, but he had to kind of adapt and, and move over to other characters. And, and so that's pretty cool. I, I, I picked up on that kind of foreshadowing, but also kind of knowing that some of the changes that came in the future, I kind of felt like I, I was, I felt like I was confident that that was intentional foreshadowing, even though it was something that didn't get to come to fruition the way it was set up. Yeah. And you talk about the changes that he had to make along the way. Not only did he have to make some changes possibly on the fly, 
But talk about skill. He also anticipated the possibility of some shakeups. And so he had what he called trap doors to where if a, an actor, actress were to leave and he did have to shift their storyline to somebody else, he, he had backup plans as to how he could do that. Because I guess those portions of the story arc were important enough. He was like, I've got to have backup plans because if something happens, I can't just drop this. It's It's got to go to somebody. And well, that's true. And and we know kind of on the outside how thing how a lot of this goes. And while there are times that an actor or actress, especially if they're going to be the like number one star, they'll be able to sign for, you know, hey, we know that it's going to be a five year so, so we sign them to a five year contract. We know that several of the characters kind of like in Game of Thrones were signed to long term contracts. But especially when you're starting a new show like a Babylon 5 that's untested, you can't sign somebody to a five-year contract right away. You kind of have to do the year and hope that it's good enough that you can extend that to three years, five years down the road. So there is a lot of opportunities to sadly have some of those shakeups that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we were lucky with several of the other main characters that we didn't have – a little bit more of that. Um, so that's good. Anything else yeah, before it, we... Oh, go ahead. Well, it's probably one of the challenges that probably keep more TV writers from actually trying this, a, a five-year story arc, yep. because they probably do know oh, things are going to change so much along the way. Why bother planning that far ahead of time? But for some reason, JMS wants to do it. When he teamed up with the Wachowski siblings for Sense8 on Netflix, sadly, that only lasted two seasons, and then Netflix did throw him a bone and, and let him have a TV movie to wrap things up after it got canceled. But I think, if I remember correctly, that was also supposed to have a five-year arc. And I mm-hmm. And I think other things that, that JMS has worked on were supposed to have five-year arcs. I think that's kind of his thing, uh, is five-year arcs. Uh, and I think he kind of patterns them after the different acts of a Shakespearean play. Okay. And then uh, despite him being smart enough to have these trap doors, he did also depend too much on some of his notes being on paper. And there's this whole story about how those paper notes got thrown out by a hotel staff at one point <laughs> and how he had to dig through trash to try to, to find them and never did. And I can I can give you more of the details of that story in a shorter episode. But uh, yeah, as I was say, sadly, we run a lot longer than we normally would want to. But this was a good episode. We had a lot to cover. So we appreciate all our listeners for hanging with us. And hopefully you'll come back next week as we do another episode and we go through another episode of Babylon 5 and we'll keep going until we get through them all. Thanks for coming along on the ride. Todd, thanks for your expertise. And we're going to wrap this up. I appreciate it. Yeah, I was looking forward to this one. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a great evening.